Welcome back to Not Alone, a podcast about faith and well-being. We're so glad you're listening. In the year and a half span we've been releasing episodes, we've tackled a lot of topics that aren't mentioned often from the pulpit. But in this episode, we'll approach what is perhaps the most touchy subject matter in the American church. Today, we're talking about human sexuality. In part one of this two-episode conversation, Michael, Evan, and Lindsay will be sharing from their own experiences growing up within the church, exploring the theology of sex and marriage, and why we as Christians often have a hard time reconciling ourselves with our sexuality. To welcome us to part one of this discussion, here are Michael McCord, Lindsay Geist, and Evan DeYoung. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to another fun episode of the Not Alone podcast, the podcast where your co-hosts make stink faces at you because you do the intro weird and different every time. We're so excited that you're here. I really wish that all of you listening could see the face that Michael and Lindsay make at me every time I do the intro. Now, they don't want to do the intro, so it falls to me. So I don't get to make any stink faces, but that's okay. I'm fine with that structure in our relationship. We're so happy to be here with you for another episode. Michael, Lindsay, you want to say hi to the people? Hey, everybody. It's always good to be back um, in your ears and in your hearts. (laughs) What what a cool phrase. I like that. You should see Lindsay because she's sitting in this large, overstuffed, really comfortable looking red chair and... I was telling her she she looks like she could have her own television series about Lindsay in the big red chair. And <laughs> then she has her own slogan now. We're coming to you in your ears and your hearts. Now it's good yes. to be with you. I would call it Lindsay in the feelings chair. <laughs> <laughs> That's a chair we I, sit I in. See, when we're talking um, about feelings. I see a spinoff uh, podcast or video series happening as a result of this, y'all. <laughs> ah, I, I love that. I love that. Well, everybody, we are uh, jumping into our next episode. Uh, We're going to be talking about sexuality in this next couple episodes. So here's your kind of caveat. If you are somebody who listens to this in the car with your kids or with a a partner or a friend that uh, you don't want to have this kind of conversation with or uh, listen to these topics, or maybe you... Might be um, yourself you don't want to have this conversation with. (laughs) Then maybe you need to skip over this. Maybe you want to introduce those topics to your family in your own way and your own timing and you aren't sure what we're necessarily going to talk about this is your fair warning uh, this might be one that you want to listen to uh, by yourself first and then kind of figure it out but it's totally up to you we just felt the responsibility to tell you what we were going to talk about and just give you a heads up we're going to talk frankly and honestly and uh, go through the history of some things with the church and so that may touch on some topics that are a little more uh, sensitive and age appropriate depending on where you and your family are at on that journey together. So we hopefully it's something that can support you in those topics and conversations that you want to have with family and friends. Uh, But if you don't want us to be the one to introduce those topics and maybe get some interesting questions, then maybe go ahead and just push pause on this one and we will uh, let you listen to it. And then you can, uh, as they say in the business world, circle back around (laughs) on that topic later. Or if you're looking for more awkward conversation for Thanksgiving or Christmas or any family gathering that's coming up, just feel free to share this with your family and listen to it together over Thanksgiving dinner. I mean, send it through the Bluetooth speaker as the next thing that pops up on your playlist. That way you can avoid any awkward internal conversations that your family might want to have otherwise. So, you know, we, we can afford all kinds of things for you. 
So. Yeah, don't play a board game. <laughs> don't play a board game with your with your family. Just throw on a podcast about uh, episode about faith and sexuality. That's great. It'll be it'll be awesome. So to to kick off our episode, uh, we are Christians on this podcast, and we come from a, a Christian pers- perspective. Uh, so we are going to be dealing a lot with what our perceptions are compared to the history of and kind of the the human journey around sexuality. So we're going to get to touch on a lot of things, which will be really fun. So, opening question. <clears throat> what is your strongest memory about the church and how they handled sexuality? Strongest memory about the church. Now, it could be your strongest memory, your first memory. Interpret that as you will. What is it that sticks in your mind about sexuality and the church? Go. Well, okay. So, my earliest memory about sexuality at all um, occurred in a car uh, after church while my mom was in the choir room changing out of her choir room to come back out. So uh, my older brother, who's two years older than me uh, and who is quite inquisitive uh, still today, um, asked my dad where babies came from in the car uh, after church. And this was before uh, my brother, my younger brother was born. So I guess I'm probably, I'm probably about four years old or so. And I remember this very vividly. I know that that sounds weird, but I just have a weird memory. But in any case, maybe, maybe, maybe I was six, maybe he was a baby, but in any case, it was that four to six year old window of time. And my brother was probably about eight, my older brother. And, and um, my dad went into a full detailed scientific explanation of where babies came from. And from that moment on, um, it opened this door to my dad. We could, we felt like as kids, we could ask him absolutely anything. And he would tell us absolutely anything we wanted to hear. And there were no questions or anything. Um, uh, the best part about the story is that my mom got in the car shortly after and, and my older brother, quickly said, I can't believe you did that with dad. Ugh. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> also, poor mom that has no idea what has Go- just happened. Completely blindsided. <laughs> just coming out of choir. She's, you know, she's happy. To... Meanwhile, poor that mo- has poor mother opened, <laughs> opened the world. So, uh, you know, what that shaped for me personally, though, was I became the expert among all my peers about the oh. uh, biological uh. functions of sexuality. Hmm. Ooh, yeah, it, that that was an interesting, uh, I'll call it a hellscape to grow up in <laughs> as a child was in a conservative area was uh, nobody really knew how babies were made. So in elementary school, we just went hanging out with friends. We were like, we tried to guess or like people would hear things from like a fr- an older friend down the street. And they, I, I I'll share them with you offline. They were wildly inaccurate and hilarious. <laughs> often involved the belly button. That's, that was what I mm-hmm. often heard was it somehow involved the belly button. We, we had one <laughs> friend who just swore up and down that God just implanted babies. <laughs> Because that's what Je- that's how Jesus like Alien. I'm yeah, you know, like, the, mm-hmm. like the movie Alien. Yeah, I, I but I think yeah, I think your point is really because when I think about my experience, right, my personal experience was my dad told me absolutely anything and everything I wanted to know. Um, no filters at all. No feeling like you had to 
not talk about it. Like there was no shame in at all about asking these questions. Um, and I mean, they were off the ball, as you can imagine what a six-year-old would want to ask on the other side, the church said nothing. I have no, no memory whatsoever about the church talking about sexuality at all until I got to be mm. an adult and heard the controversies around, uh, around human sexuality. Interesting. There's, there's two things that stand out in my mind um, around this conversation of sexuality. Um, I remember the conversations ha- having them with my mom, learning all about where babies come from, but also um, just talking about sex and your physical anatomy and all of that. Um, kind of your typical birds and the bees talk. What I distinctly remember is my mom not saying sex is bad. Uh, She is saying, she said, it is your choice what you do with your body. Um, It should be your choice and not anybody else's. Um, And the messaging in general, I wish that I could remember more specifically the exact conversation. I should ask her more about this. but it's mostly like, I'll love you no matter what you choose. And you have a right, uh, when you feel ready and comfortable and safe to make whatever choice feels right for you. Um, and it was so affirming, um, at the same time, um, I don't remember specific messages from the church. Um, kind of the, the blanket understanding was you were not to be having sex. Um, just don't do it. Just don't do it. Um, you're trying to be holier all the time. I remember in college being in a small group. Um, and I'd say that we were all pre- fairly naive. Um, not clueless, but just uh, maybe more conservative in some of our theology. Because uh, we hadn't been open to the world. And we were reading the book Lady in Waiting um, in our girl small group. And one of the first chapters talking about sex is like, are you dating to date? Are you dating to marry? Because you should be dating only to, you know, kind of this idea that you should be dating more to marry and you should be saving yourself for this moment. Again, I don't remember all the details about this book except that within the first couple chapters, there were parts that we felt really bothered by, like God would be repulsed if you did this, Um, which stung so badly. We all took out our pens, drew lines through sentences or ripped pages out. Um, And then as a group decided that we uh, thought that we wanted to date to date instead of date to marry only. Um, that we wanted to like explore who we are and relationships. And um, it was a huge turning point for me uh, that we had that open conversation. And we circled back to it a bunch during college um, in that small group, Um, having conversations with the other women about 
making choices about our bodies and what those choices were and how our bodies uh, could glorify God, both in, you know, abstinence, if that was the choice or uh, in embracing pleasure and God creating you as a sexual being. Um, And so what started as a potentially really harmful read as a group really opened incredible dialogue for the years to come of us wrestling with what it meant as young adults and adult women. Wow. It's a very mature process and journey. That's and very that different. That's why than my, my, my friend sprinting down the street and saying, guys, 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 guys. So-and-so down the street told me how girls get pregnant. And how babies are made. And we were all like, you have to tell us. And then he described a wildly inaccurate process. And we were like, no way! Well, conversely, so I had this, I just took my kids, there's a lake near us. Uh, and I went there as a kid growing up. And I can remember us all on this like big flotilla. We were out there, like all of us had our floats. And this is when I was like 12 years old. And there's like, you know, 10 of us 12-year-old boys out there. And they're all asking me questions that I had the answers to because my scientific father had told me all the answers. And, uh, and so I just, I just had that memory because we were recently at the, at that same lake and I was out there in a float and just started laughing about it. And I told Emily about that, that I was like some, uh, you know, like expert in sexuality. I could just remember all the guys like, what? It was just this, which is just amazes me that, we, and I think that's part of the reason we're having this conversation is that the church's response to sexuality has been really one of just no, mm-hmm. no, we're not going to talk about it. No, it's not good for you. Uh, no, just don't do it. And, you know, I think the church is, I have a sense that the church is sort of somewhat, some, some parts of the church, I should say, are kind of reckoning with that and realizing that that's probably not the healthiest approach uh, to sexual sexuality and, and Christianity. Well, in a lot of ways, the church either has to reckon with it or people individually are going to reckon with it. Hmm. Um, I mean, the same way that my small group was reading a book and then having an internal battle, we either... Uh, we're going to battle the church about it, or we were going to talk to one another or make decisions ourselves about it. Mm-hmm. I would rather the church create more safe spaces to talk about it there. Um, the only, the other memory that kind of comes to mind is how many of youth group events did you hear that like blue and pink can't mix? You don't want to make purple. Mm. Um, and you know, that or any school dance, leave room for the Holy Spirit between you two. Um, that, that bodies. Did you go to this is a whole no, This is a whole, no, <laughs> this is a whole nother tangent, but I mean, that's the kind of origin, not full origin, but like our understanding of feeling and thinking shame about our bodies mm. comes from stuff like that. And absolutely. Yeah. It's really formative and it's really hard to deprogram from. I think that's another realization that I've had is after working with college students for such a long period of time, um, college students tend to get married and I get to do their weddings. And that means I do premarital counseling with them and 
marital counseling after they get married. And the, the one of the, uh, there are obviously lots of challenges in, in marriage, generally speaking, but from those who come particularly from more conservative leaning uh, Christian traditions um, or religious traditions in general, not just Christianity, um, there is this um, enormous challenge reckoning with human sexuality inside of marriage. Because um, if, a, if a person has spent you know, a better part of 20 or 30 years of their life just saying no to sex and that sex is bad and something I shouldn't be thinking about, then when you get married, you've 30 years is a really long time to shame yourself about your thoughts mm-hmm. and your what you like to do and what you want to do. And so when you get into that loving, committed relationship of marriage, you, you can't break. It's really hard to break from that. And oh, so yeah. there's there's a there's a lot of growing body of evidence actually uh, around the decrease in sexual activity among young adults. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of influences in that. Um, but for the last two or three years now, there's been a significant decline in sexual activity among young adults, which is really astonishing. Uh, and and that's and that's data that is not pandemic related. That's right. Um, yes, the pandemic probably made that worse. We don't uh-huh. really know the data of pandemic yet, but yeah, that's pre-pandemic kind of decline. I, I love that um, when the pandemic first hit uh, and everybody hunkered down, people started saying like, oh, there's going to be this whole baby boom, you know, nine, 10 months from now, we're going to see so many babies. And I started looking at everybody and said, what? Have y'all lost your mind? Like, this is not a snow day that everybody's going home and having sex to pass the time. What's happening is now everybody's panicked about the future of the world. They don't know if they're going to live. They don't know if somebody else is going to live. And there are very few people that are um, having sex as an escape. Most of the time, people were uh, too in their heads and worried about enough other things that um, having sex did not sound like an enjoyable option at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, So it's even interesting language that we use of, you know, there's going to be so many babies. No. Um, We'll see. Yeah. And there's, and I should say, it's not all the church's fault. There's some really Mm -hmm. interesting kind of dynamics that's happening. And, um, I, th- I think they're sort of social dynamics and that have changed over the last, you know, 50 or 60 years that have changed sexuality in, in the non-religious world as well, that I think is influencing how, so, how people are engaging. So I know some of those facts, but um, Michael, I know that uh, you are more of the historian among us. Yeah. Um that you hold more uh, history and facts and knowledge in your brain than don't mean to throw us under the bus, Evan, but than us. Um, throw me under the bus. <laughs> I am a repository of random information. <laughs> that, uh, yeah, the intellect and the doctor among us. Um, can you teach us some of this history? Or share any of your knowledge, please. <laughs> yes, yeah, Dr. I mean, Dr. McCord, please bestow I, I, upon us. I think just kind of thinking, I was thinking about this episode and in, um, in about the first question you asked me. And there is, um, 
One of the most powerful images I have of sexuality um, actually came from my high school um, head football coach. <laughs> Realize how that came across. He was sorry. He was my. It's going to be a English lot of giggling teacher. in this episode. <laughs> I think everybody. I think let's just let's part just, of the right. giggling is not embarrassment, but thinking back to how bizarre some of these moments are, or how pivotal they were, and how awkward they were. Oh, I have some great examples from growing up in church about how sexuality was talked about. And I I think I'm going to save them for our next episode, which will focus more on purity culture. Uh, But uh, I'll just... I can't uh, wait. A little teaser involves That that will help narrow our focus a little bit. Yeah, it involves paper, toothpaste, Coca-Cola, and urine. Okay, I know part of that, that's how the story teaser. works, but that that's is, okay. Um, okay, um, folks, okay. Well, you may not want to come back for the next episode, <laughs> but the next episode, we'll, we'll focus a little bit more about the church culture around that, around sexuality and how that shapes itself. But thinking, so, so my most powerful moment thinking about sexuality came from my, my head, fo- the head football coach of, of my high school football team was also our AP English teacher. Um, coach Lowe was his name. And um, in he was uh, uh, really into John Milton. And so we read lots of John Milton in his class. And we read uh, part of the trilogy, The, the Paradise Lost, um, and it, which is a you know, big poem by John Milton. And there is this scene, uh, and this will make sense why I'm sharing this in just a minute, I promise. Uh, there's this scene where Adam... Uh, this Adam and Eve is just the creation story. They're in the garden. They're talking to the, the angels and Adam is having this conversation about sex. And he asks the angel, I don't know if it's Gabriel or Michelangelo. I don't remember. I should be better. Sorry, Coach Lowe. Um, but he asked the angel, you know, hey, is there sex in heaven? Do angels get to have sex in heaven? And, and the angel says, absolutely. But the good news is that your bodies don't get in the way anymore. And mm. I thought that was the most, I can remember oh. being like 16 years old and thinking that's the most powerful thing I've ever heard about sexuality. And it did not come from the church. It did not come from my family. It came from John Milton. What a powerful image of intimacy and connection in a lot of ways. Right. And that's where I think I like to root the first conversation about this this story of Adam and Eve, this creation story, this way of kind of rooting ourselves to how how all things came into being. I I love the second version. I think we talked about this in the episode where you see see the creator, God, um, leaning down and forming humans out of mud um, next to a stream and putting uh, lips against ours and breathing into us the breath of life. And there's this sense of really intimates into me. I can't speak intimacy. That's just unparalleled, right? They're just, you're one with each other and one with your creator in this garden. Um, and what we find is there's some rules that exist in the garden. And um, those rules are, you know, are to, to stay away from this tree and to, to not eat this fruit. And we know what happens. A lot of us know this. There's this conversation with Adam and Eve and they eat the fruit anyway. And then there's this scene in the creation story where Adam and Eve are hiding from God and all of a sudden realize they're naked. 
And I think that is just such, for me, again, like a really powerful image of sexuality and how sexuality has been treated in the church. It's like, you know, everything was good. We were so together. We were one with each other and one with our creator. And then we looked around and realized that we didn't have any pants on. And that is like the introduction of knowledge, this, this Mm -hmm. awareness of these other things. And so we spend, and really the story of the Bible in many ways, you could say, is just a continual of us putting more and more clothes on. We're trying to put more and more things between each other and between our creator. And then you'll see these moments where sort of God interacts and we, we sort of get naked again. Uh, but then we rapidly realize that vulnerability of being naked and, and try to cover ourselves up again. And I, you know, fast forward as you continue throughout the history of the church, we see this, the church becomes the seller of clothing, of spiritual mm-hmm. clothing. You know, we, we have these rules we have to follow to stay pure, to be clean, uh, to be upright, to be honorable, to, to, to be able to be a rabbi, to, you know, all these standards that have been set by the church as we continue to go on, which is just a form of holy clothing. These things that, you know, are so somehow supposed to make us closer to God because we're staying cleaner, but actually maybe actually what's dividing us in, in many ways from both our creator and each other. And, you know, the, when, when we look back at the history, the, the arc of history, around sexuality in the church, we realize that much of the weight lands on women. And that starts in the creation story. There's a lot of blame mm-hmm. that Eve is the one who's the one who led Adam astray and that's it's Eve's fault. And that's why you have menstruation and you know, all those sorts of things, right? There's all these stories around. So the, the burden of sexual uh, purity and immorality lies pretty heavily on women. And you kind of see that progress through society, right? Mm-hmm. As women are objects, and they're traded, they're uh, sold, they're possessed, and uh, then in, and they don't have a voice in the system. Uh, they're not they're given the right to vote. They can't own things. There's just you know this long period of history where women become really objectified and still are today. And and women have to be the responsible uh, ones that kind of serve as the gatekeepers. That's right. Times to uphold everything. I mean, I th- I think about how many rape cases uh the commentary is boys will be boys what did it's you just expect? locker room conversation it, it's yeah. just whatever um, you, you should have yeah. said no uh yeah, you should have said no more loudly you should never have gotten drunk you shouldn't have dressed that way um mm-hmm. as though it is always the woman's responsibility yeah. uh it absolutely it's the burden is on on you mm-hmm. women to to mm-hmm. keep us you know, and so it goes the other way too, right? Because then I have grown up with this like ideological framework that men are sexual beasts and mm-hmm. that incapable of showing restraint. Yeah, in, incapable of showing respect, restraint, wanting it all the time from everyone they see. Like, do you know this? And then, you know, I don't live up to that. So does that mean I'm not a real man? Like, I don't mm-hmm. have the same like ravenous desire to possess every woman. And does that make me less manly in some way? And so I think there's like this, it's, it's the weight has, the burden has been placed on the women throughout history and even today still. Right. But it also heavily affects how boys and men come into life carrying that same 
a, a different version of it, but the same load of sexual responsibility and culpability. So at what point did it transition then? Because we go from this kind of property, patriarchal, because a lot of the, I get really hung up in the historical context of how families were treated and relationships were managed. And it gets kind of glossed over in the Old Testament. Like the fact that we teach Old Testament to kids and we have to be so selective about what we put on the flannel graph. You remember the flannel graph, the little piece of felt, and then you'd have the little biblical figures and that kind of stuff. You it's know called talking- a flannel graph? I think it so. is. Hold on, I'll Google it. I'm pretty sure that's... I, I, I think oh. I've had this conversation. I just before. thought it was the felt board, but... Flannel I, I'm graph, gonna... also called flannel board or flannel gram. Okay. I mean, I knew what you were talking about, but thank you for teaching me something new that... I would love to say I'll now remember from going moving forward, but I'm sure it will not stick in my brain. I hope it makes it onto an episode of Lindsay in the big red chair. <laughs> Lindsay in the feelings chair. <laughs> Lindsay in the chair of emotion. Could teach feeling, the feelings well using a flannel graph. It'll be great. Oh, oh no, that would be something else. Yeah. So Evan, I think you're right. It's like, it's, it's, we gloss over so much. And, and I don't, I don't, I'm not going to say that that's bad. I don't think it's, it, it is, right? I mean, the the history of Christianity is deeply convoluted, but so are humans and our whole story. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, my own, if you just look at my life as a microcosm of the bigger cosm of people, I mean, my life's messy and I want you to gloss over parts of it because those bad parts don't typify me. Um, don't, don't, you know, con- connote the whole thing that Michael McCord is. Hopefully my bigger story um, shares that. And so when you, when you jump into specifics in the Bible, yeah, you can certainly say there's, there's some really challenging moments in Christianity that are really hard to endure. Well, as a kid, you know, I was told that, that the virtuous action was to read the Bible, right? Like, like have your quiet time. Like it, like you are a person of value and virtue and holiness. If you have that time and you understand scripture and you pray and you, and you read that, right? So then you actually read the Bible and you get to the parts that are not quite as dressed up <laughs> that you're taught. And, you know, I, I think Noah's story and the story of Noah's Ark and the flood are a big part of that because they don't really teach you as kids that Noah got really drunk <laughs> after the flood and had an intimate relationship with his family members, right? Like it, it, it's not a part of it. And so it's like, Oh, read the Bible. Just don't read that part. And so it was very confusing growing up because uh, most of us don't have great answers for that. Right. And the church doesn't equip us for how to answer that. When someone has a question about it, I, I was at a panel for a religious religion class at a university and I got asked that question after like we were just talking about religion in general and, and Methodism and there was a uh, somebody who was uh, from the, the Catholic Church and somebody who was from the Baptist Church and they were like one of the students goes uh, how did what are we supposed to do with the fact that Noah got drunk and had sex with his family uh, after the flood how what is how does that relate to Christianity that was the question and I was like uh. <laughs> I mean, there's so many stories in scripture about people struggling with um, 
proper sexual desire and um and when to express it and when to not and uh who to express it with i mean i keep thinking of david and bathsheba and um i mean he sends off bathsheba's husband uh to the front lines to the front lines being you know hoping he will be killed and he is i mean spoiler alert if you hadn't read that story in scripture um i hadn't gotten to the ending yet (laughs) second uh, um i decided i'd google it while we were talking second samuel 11 so if you need like a juicy story go back and read it if you um if you finished watching but um, to cover up his to, to cover up his own um I, I don't want to put shameful words out there, but like his sexual immorality of having sex with somebody else's wife, he then is like, you know what? I'll just cover it up by sending um uh sending Uriah out to the front lines and have him killed, and then maybe that will just cover up everything that I did. Um in some ways in the church and in society as a whole, like, I don't want to say this is just the church. There was never a time when we weren't having sex. Like we, as a people, we're not having sex. There's just seasons when people are trying to cover it up and not talk about it. Yes. And there's not us in, in the same, there's not a moment in, in, in a person's life post, puberty um where they don't think about it mm-hmm. like that and that's that's the that's the most fascinating piece about all this is that it is a it's a universal experience a universal struggle and a universal reality but the church in many regards in greater society i won't it's not all the church's fault but the greater society too just doesn't talk about it now we'll profit off of it absolutely we'll profit we'll create industry surrounding that that secrecy and that the shame that's been created in our culture, but we won't talk about it. And that, that probably does more damage than, than anything. Well, and I have, I, I realized that I'm mixed up to biblical stories of shame and sexuality. Uh, Cause Noah gets drunk after he gets off the ark and then he's naked in his tent and his family sees him and they talk about it, and then he curses his kids. That's what happens with Noah. Yeah, yeah. Lot's daughters get him drunk, first his oldest daughter, and then has sex with him, and then his other daughter then does it as well. And I just combined them into two people. So uh, apologies to everyone who's uh, a, a real biblical historian who is like, uh, that's not exactly what happened, Buster. Uh, so yeah, so there we go. But I think that nakedness of Noah and the fact that we don't talk about that and that like he cursed his family for seeing him naked like it's very confusing and it's the same way we don't talk about it and it's just kind of like you just put it in a box because it's just a little too complicated and doesn't always seem particularly relevant because it's not john three sixteen, so it just doesn't get talked about not only does the church have a hard time talking about bodies i mean in general sexuality or not we just shame bodies lots um but in american society um bodies were have been property for hundreds of years um i mean that's how uh 
while this episode's not about it, I mean, slavery is owning bodies. Um, marriage was often about owning somebody else's body because women were seen as property. Um, women didn't have any rights uh, without being married. Yeah, unable to even own property. So you had to attach mm-hmm. yourself to a, a male figure. A piece of land, yes. In order to... Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what you run into with, uh, was it Ruth? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ruth Ruth has her kids, and she's completely unable to own property and like pass that down to her children, and her entire legacy is going to be lost unless she attaches herself to a man who can then own the property. And so it helps to, I think, historically explain the desperation that she was experiencing in scripture in order to make some of the decisions that she was going to make. I mean, it's just, it's inconceivable to think about now, but when we look at even like women's suffrage in the United States, that like, women have only had the right to vote for like a hundred years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, you know, a lot of historians point to sort of 1960 as like a really big turning point for uh, sexuality and for women empowerment, because in 1960 was the introduction of birth control. And so up until then, sexuality, having sex was directly linked to having children. Mm-hmm. And, and so that meant that women who would take the responsibility of those children um, were often throttled in their ability to contribute to society in a wider scale. So they wouldn't be able to go to school, to college, they didn't have access to college. Um, they didn't have the opportunity to, to get a job and, you know, pursue a career because, you know, it was, you get married, you'd have sex, you'd have children and you'd become a parent. And that took priority over other, other constructs that you might have been looking for. But 1960, we start to see this change because all of a sudden sex is not tied to childbirth uh, as directly. And that liberates in many ways or whatever language you want to use, because I think people can look at the story from different vantage points, but I would use the word liberates women from that, that expectation that having sex and exploring one's sexuality is somehow connected to immediately having children and being responsible for them. And so we see an increase in women going to college, women gaining careers, and that has shifted our entire culture in ways that I don't even think the church still recognizes. Um, for example, in 1960, the average age a woman would experience her first marriage was 18 years old, 18 years old. For men, they were 22. The average age in 1960 for a man to experience his first marriage was 22 years old. And today, um, that has changed dramatically. So today, um, or I should say this, this data is from 2017 uh, from the Census Bureau. The average age a woman experiences her first marriage is 28.1 years old. So 10 years more. Mm -hmm. So 10 years expansion between from 18 to 28. Then for men, it's 29.9. So just almost 30 years old. So that's eight year extension for men uh, to experience their first marriage. But at the same time, right, this is so this is expanding. Um, what we call delaying adolescence. So, so there's like five marks of 
maturity, uh, you know, and one of those is, is getting married and having children and being financially independent. And, and that, that has stretched that in 1960, that was like, um, I was like 21 years old, uh, was the average age that people had reached those five marks of maturity. And today it's over 30 before, um, that happens for, for adults. And so what they call that is sort of that delayed adolescence. We're stretching out that period of life. What the church hasn't recognized is a lot of a lot of things. I don't think they recognize that. So, like in 1960, we thought, okay, no sex, don't have sex, stay away from it. When you get 18 women, you can get married, you can have sex. It's all mm-hmm. good, right? So, you know, most women would start puberty at 12 or 13 years old, and they wait till 18 to get married and have sex. And that that wasn't this, you know, prolonged a five year time. five year time span, six right. year time span. Now it you're doesn't feel like an 15, eternity. Yeah, 15 to 16 years to say to a woman who's- And that's who's, average age. Right, right. It extends in both directions in order for mm-hmm. them to be- well, And hasn't but, the average age of puberty lowered as well? Yes, mm-hmm. yes. It has dropped because of lots of various reasons They they that women and men are both experiencing puberty at an earlier age. So you're having the sexual advent is like this much longer period of time in a person's life. And the church is still saying, just stay away from it. Just don't do it. No. And we're not going to talk about it. Don't think about it. And so it it, don't think about it, all those things. Right. And so we haven't responded to that. Uh, And we don't, we don't, we don't know what to do with it actually either uh, because of the theological framework from which we operate around sexuality. And that creates a lot of sexual frustration uh, intention and anxiety a lot of depression and um, these feelings of shame that I talked about when people get young people do get married. Finally, they've gone 16 years telling themselves that these thoughts they have are bad and they shouldn't have them to now I'm married. I'm supposed to have these and embrace them. And that's it's, mm-hmm. you go 16 years like that. And it's almost impossible. It's, it's, it takes a lot of therapy and a lot of coaching and support to get through that. So, so you can see like the world's changed and for lots of reasons, and we as as Christians, I think, need to talk about that and come up with a new way of understanding and think about sexuality that's more healthy and inclusive. Lindsay, I'd be curious, based on your clinical experience, what the reality is that is as you have you and your colleagues have conversations with with clients. Is that true like is it true that people are having a hard time coming to terms with that after putting it on the shelf for so long when they are married or decide to become sexually active is that something that they do have to go revisit or is that more just our assumption no that's pretty accurate um it's interesting there were several things about this that were uh, sticking out on my mind even the phrase delayed adolescence um and what the milestones are um we as a society, uh, society is shifting some, still not there. The church is definitely not there of like, what makes you an adult? Um, so both of you are married and I am not. Um, and it is interesting the times that the church still sees me as young because I am not married. Um, and how that influences it all. Um, cause that is seen as a mile marker of what makes you an adult, even though we've just heard all the statistics in a lot of ways that that's not the only thing that makes you an adult. 
Um, and it, it works incidentally too, in the college culture, it works the same way. So if, if I were 22 years old and I'm working with college students who are 18 years old and up to 21 years old, right? So I'm a young adult staffer on a, on a campus ministry. In the moment I get married, it's like, I'm completely a different person because mm-hmm. I, that, that there's a demarcation of maturity of some, you know, it's within our culture that, oh, there's, even though they're 22, they're like so much older than me because they're married. So it, yeah. it is a really phenomenal kind of thing. Where did that exists. theological framework develop from? Like uh, in, in our country, like we, like it, was it like a, like a Puritan thing? Like, because I mean, we, like our country was founded by more or less, I don't want to say religious extremists, right? But like people who couldn't deal with the religious context where they were at. So they decided to leave so that they could express their religious beliefs differently than the location that they, so maybe religious pilgrims would be a better word, but they were on the extremes of theological thinking at the time. So they, they wanted to leave. And so they did. And that is the foundation upon which our country was started. Does that have influence still? Is it relevant? I mean, I think that there's this idea of Protestant work ethic that really revolves about American work ethic too. So it's about getting everything right. Like we got to get everything right and we got to work really hard and endlessly and somehow earn a lot of that earns this idea that we've got to earn God's love. And that means so that that expresses manifests itself in all kinds of like personal relationships. And I absolutely think that it manifests itself in sexual relationships and sexuality and sexual identity um, as trying to get yourself right so that God loves you and that you do enough right things that measure up to that love and that we experience that kind of redemption. Um, I should say that I, historically though speaking, I think that, you know, I honestly think that the church does this. It means well, like it, I think the church as a whole is attempting to create a system that helps people thrive. And we know just statistically, we know that children born in inside families that, you know, more, uh, stable families have a more stable future. That was much more true even uh, earlier in in history. If you were in a, if you were, it's almost impossible to be a single parent. And so I think those these early constructs of family and um, sexual identity and sexuality in the church were really intended to create a society where children had could thrive and be healthy. And you know, the trouble is like all things they run amok and you gain power and control over people and you, and it becomes a situation where it hurts people more than it helps people. And I think, I think that's the ramification that we're at right now is like that, you know, the the whole world has changed, but the church hasn't. And, and instead of adapting and talking about it, we've just become more and more quiet because the things that are happening for the church, for that structure are more and more scary you know, 16 years until you can get married. What do we do with that? People are in love with the same gender. What do we do with that? It's legal to be married. How do we handle that in our construct? And we just don't know. We don't have a mechanism. We don't know how to talk about that in a really holistic and healthy way, the way the church is organized right now. Going back to your earlier question, Evan, of what do I see in my counseling practice? 
uh, with all of this. Um, in, in summary, what I see is that we're bad about talking about sex. <laughs> um, period. Whether that's for people that are um, single or people that are married. Um, the people, and, and this is especially just like in the church world, um, people that are married, uh, we are often doing counseling work, unpacking, um, all the shame that they have about enjoying their body and enjoying sex now, um, that you can't just flick a light switch and all of a sudden be a sexual being after years when you have not let yourself uh, experience, uh, that form of bodily pleasure, um, and connection and intimacy with somebody else. It's, uh, it is not something that you just wake up one day and you're like, Oh, it works. That whole part of me is just there and awakened and we're fine. Um, so I do a lot of work. I mean, I work predominantly with women, um, and there's a lot of women dealing with internal shame uh, around sex, married and still dealing with it. Um, I shouldn't enjoy that um, that thing. We shouldn't try new things. Um, I should just say yes all the time. I can't ever say no. Um, all of that. Um, and then I have... The other half of the women that I work with are single women that um, are mostly older-ish in the fact that when I say older-ish, um, not 22, we're talking late 20s, 30s, early 40s um, that may not be married and are asking questions of, okay, maybe I'm, they use language like I'm saving myself for marriage. Um, but what happens if I don't ever get married? Um, or um, I want to have sex, but I think that it's bad, but I want to enjoy it and connect. Does that make me a bad person? Um, what is the line? What is okay? Um, I mean, we have a lot of really frank conversations um, about kind of a spectrum of sexual intimacy. Okay, let's talk about the entire spectrum. Um, what things are you comfortable with? What are you not? Um, and helping people find language around it, even just talking about it out loud. Um, there, I mean, people are always shocked in ses session when I bring up phrases or words or language, even around masturbation or oral sex. When I even ask questions, you can watch the person sitting across from me get uncomfortable squirm around, look away. Um, or I on mean, a Zoom call recording a podcast. I know. Like, you both, said that. Just, and I, both my, of y'all like, just looked like, at me like, like did you like, say oh, that she out said loud? The word. <laughs> this, is where, this is where you cut to Thanksgiving Day. Just cut to this 
this moment. Yeah. And um, it's because language, even the words oral sex or masturbation are ones that. They might as well uh, be cuss words. Yeah. I mean, oh. it is so uncomfortable. We're not allowed to say that. Um, think we might think it, but we could never talk about it. Um, and I think that as a society, as friends, I hope that you have a community of friends where you can say those words and not feel ashamed, um, to even ask questions of how do I feel about this? When I hear those words, what is happening? What am I noticing in my mind, my heart, my body? Um, that, that we just don't talk well. And again, I can be in a conversation with a person that is single or a person that is married. And I get literally the same reaction in counseling sessions of our bodies are supposed to want to have sex, but only in certain contexts at certain times. Um, And then we're supposed to be amazing at it, passionate about it and love every minute of it, but not talk about it unless you're married. And sometimes you're just supposed to talk about how sex is amazing and wonderful. Yeah. Well, and (laughs) so it's, it, 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 and just to, to add to that because of my ministry with college students and, and being a, a male and having lots of male students come through my ministry over the years, it's, it's not just women who struggle with that mm-hmm. impotence and that inability, you know, erectile dysfunction and ability to engage in sexual activity is common among young men too, especially those coming from very conservative Christian backgrounds mm-hmm. um, for lots of various reasons that you've, you've mentioned. And so those are really, really common common experiences, you know, and some of this, I will say too, we talked a little bit in the pre-show about, about how, you know, this reluctance to talk about it and be open about it. And then this sort of shaming of masturbation and other things really has created this subculture of of pornography and addiction Mm -hmm. to pornography because the inability to be intimate, you know, you're asking, you're asking a person to give up 16 years of sexual activity uh, to get married and, and in doing so, they, the, in the words of Jurassic Park, nature finds a way. Like it's like humans are going to find a way. <laughs> that was uh, an interesting uh, reference in that moment. Yeah. Life, you know, uh, I love, finds I love, a way. Uh, yeah. Love finds a way. Sexuality finds a way. It doesn't go anywhere. You can't, you can't bottle it up. It's, and when you do it, 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 it finds itself exploding in really, you know, unfortunate ways. I mean, we see that throughout. Um, lots of different expressions uh, in in church life, in particular, where someone's asked to be celibate, and that celibacy in in situations can lead to really bad decisions that mm-hmm. that hurt people. So, um, I think that reluctance to talk about this and to to be open and just have sort of that no stance has actually fed the pornography industry and the addiction that young people are experiencing. So, I often use this uh, kind of visual, uh, explanation that do you know, do you remember those, um, kind of like squeeze dolls, uh, where if you squeeze a certain part of them, like another part pops out, like if you squeeze their legs, their eyes bulge out. If you squeeze their head, you know, their leg kicks out or something. Us not talking about sex and sexuality 
is like squeezing certain parts of that doll. It's going to come out somehow. Most likely in um, what I would phrase as an unhealthy or inappropriate way. Um, so we either can get good, good or better um, at talking about this, or we can continue to be unhealthy in other ways. And pornography will continue to be a problem. Um, we're going to continue to have really uh, awkward and strange fights over um, uh, birth control, ad additional contraceptives, abortion, um, because we're not really talking about what we need to be talking about. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah, well, That's true. I mean, I think we, we have to have we have to have conversations too. I mean, we have we've just said pornography and that it's you know it's determined to be bad by the church. But like, I mean, is it is it unhealthy? When I talk to one of the biggest conversations that I have with folks who aren't believers or didn't grow in the church is what to do with sexuality, what the rules and the boundaries are, what to do. Do I need to stop watching porn? Does that matter? I mean, how, if from a Christian perspective, would we say that pornography is unhealthy for our sexuality? Or is like, how would we answer that question if there was someone who had no faith background in, in the conversation? I mean, I think it shapes it. Well, I can remember when I worked with a group of high school boys for at a church as a youth, like the one of the counselors, and we went through our sexuality. Uh, there was a series on sexuality, and and this issue was really important to them, um, and and they were just sort of indignant that the church would think this was bad, that this is going to happen, that they they're going to masturbate, they're going to look at pornography. It's ubiquitous. It said what we should do is is come up with an ethical form of pornography. That's what we need to do. And, <laughs> and that way, that was, you, the you solution. Know, because be great. That was their solution. Cause, cause what, I mean, I do honor yeah, that. that right. they, I mean, I think it's, that it's they own... recognize that part of the big problem is that pornography often um, is about the poor and unequal treatment of women. Subjectification. Um, it's mm -hmm. uh, enslavement. Um, mm -hmm. it's using minors. I mean, there, there are lots, there's lots of problem in, but that that's, I think that's just an example, not that we can solve this issue, but I think that's an example of, of culture's unwillingness to address sexuality mm -hmm. and it will find a way and people will be in gen, you know, they'll, they'll come up with ingenious ways, uh, to, to, to serve that need of the population if we don't talk about it and come up with more holistic conversation. And uh, I, you know, I think it again, pornography is not the church's fault. I'm not, I'm not saying that, but it becomes a tool. Um, someone's going to talk about sexuality. Is it going to be the church or is it going to be, you know, the, the, the computer screen? And I think that's really what the church needs to wrestle with uh, around their identity. And I mean, if, if we have moved into a place that um, sex is no longer connected to childbirth only, um, and in some ways it's shifted more towards pleasure and enjoyment than childbirth only, um, then it becomes more consumable. Ultimately, I think that's exactly mm -hmm. what's happened. It's become recreational. 
in many mm-hmm. ways because it's not attached to the creation of life. Um, you know, I would argue because I, I I do uh, I am a spiritual person mm-hmm. and I go back to that image of of adding Adam asking about sex with angels and and that idea that sexuality and human sexuality is really about the connection of two people in a very intimate and vulnerable way. Um, because you're you're enacting that naked and unafraid, you know, you it should be an un, un, an unafraid experience where you can be naked, completely naked with somebody else and feel comfortable and safe. And ultimately that's what sex is about. Mm-hmm. And and that happens, you know, in a way that that connects two people together. I think that's for me at least, in, in my spiritual framework of sexuality, that's how I think about it. I th- I mean, to shift from sex as reproduction to sex as a consumable good um, or for pleasure, I do wonder if, you know, maybe the middle ground is going back to that intimacy, that what would it be like if we spent more time thinking about sex as intimacy Mm -hmm. than anything else? Well, and that's one of the coaching techniques that I've used with, you know, young, young guys in particular who are struggling with that is just start by being intimate, just being, being naked and being together or, you know, like the, the pressure is usually on the end result. And that's where, mm-hmm. you know, there's, so they feel like there's just an enormous amount of product pressure to produce and, and that pressure becomes like a, a block for them, an emotional block and they can't get there and they can't. And so that, you know, that I think, and, and I think that's true for us in just, just the wider talk about sexuality in churches. So we just need to start having more intimate conversations with each other, being more honest and vulnerable with each other. And in doing so we can get into that deeper conversation about sexuality in a way that's, that's constructive and not, not destructive hmm. and shaming. Um, I do want to leave you with just thinking about when you, when you mentioned the word masturbation, I had, I had a friend. <laughs> I, I was going to, I wasn't going to laugh. I was just, I laugh just more, I, I laughed because I was like, okay, that was a tangent. That's not where here, I thought I you were going as you were. Right. I know. You I, sounded like I'm going to wrap this up I, in some I eloquent am. phrase. And then all of a sudden I'm I was gonna like, get, just, Hold okay, on. sorry, it's sorry. Like, there, it's I like, had this however. friend. Okay. So I had this friend who grew up Jewish. Um, is this an married. actual friend or is this, this one of those stories where you're like, I have a friend and it's the story's really you. It's really me. I grew up Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, so I'm learning I, a lot I about did. Michael this episode. <laughs> I, I'm, I met this. Okay. Friend. For real, a friend. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, a number of years ago and he grew up Jewish and he got married and he became a Christian uh, and he got a divorce. And when he got divorced, he was still really just early in his identification of of being a Christian. Um, and we met all the time to talk about that. We went through that divorce together and, um, it's just, he's somebody I really cherish in my life. It, it, it was a sort of fortuitous accident that we got to meet each other, but we did. And we've, uh, since then, by the way, I've married he and his new wife. And, um, anyway, there's this moment, right? So after he's, he's like, what do I do? Because I've been, I've been married and I've been having sex and now I'm not supposed to have sex because I'm not married and I don't know what to do with that because I'm going nuts. 
This is, he's just one of the most forthright vulnerable people I know. I love him for it. And he's doesn't have this Christian framework that can, that like preconceives how we're supposed to respond to all this stuff. So he's just like, you know, everything's out. So he went to a support group, a single support group at this church that he goes to. It was the kind of a conservative, non-denominational church. And, uh, the, so this is a singles support for divorced people. And they did, uh, they separated by men and women. And the men's group did this um, study on sexuality. And they had a whole two week chapters, two chapters on masturbation. And uh, but I, I, he came to me, he called me, I could just, I vividly remember, he called me like after on his way home from it. He's like, Michael, I don't know. He sent me screenshots of it or pictures of it. And he's like, I, they told me today, and I don't even know what to do with this. They told me today in our small group that it's it's totally okay for men to masturbate as long as they say the Lord's Prayer while they do it. What? What? <laughs> Why is the church's, the church's <laughs> theology is so... I don't even know where to start. <laughs> I just I no want to understand. I want to understand sometimes how we attempt to weave theology into the strangest things. <laughs> it oh just, I don't know. Uh, I don't saying our uh, father <laughs> in heaven at the same. I don't, I don't, I don't, I, this is that. I just say that to say this, the church has got to do better. We, we got to be better. We got to have yeah. conversation. It can't be trite answers and, and things to try to move along. And we can't, we have to have real conversations, not, um quick fixes yes not conversations like that that don't even really address some things it's just are you saying that the church can't have one night stands with the concept of sexuality (laughs) no strings attached (laughs) oh Oh. there it is well this has been a journey guys i don't know if we got to where we wanted to go but I think we had initial real conversation about sexuality in a way that I've never experienced in church life. And I hope other people have experienced it too. What I also really value about this conversation today, y'all, is that looking back, um, both culture and the church and how sex and sexuality has been handled, um, the three of us would not have been able to have this conversation together years ago, um, being, uh, male and female together. Um, and so many churches married and unmarried. Correct. And so many churches still separate all of this dialogue. And while I believe that there is fruitful conversation that can be, that can happen, uh, when I am with other women versus when I am with men as well, talking about sexuality, I think that it's incredible that we can sit here together as friends and as colleagues to talk about this and not let it be secretive. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get into more details. I'm hesitant to phrase it that way, but we'll get into more specifics around specific topics and challenges, uh, as we go into future episodes in this segment that we're doing. So if you felt like it was a very general conversation and we just kind of did a historical overview and just kind of opened the door, that is correct. That is what has happened. And 
that's what this episode is for, is just to, to open a dialogue. Uh, and so we'll continue that dialogue as, as we record future episodes and reflect on the conversations that we've had. But uh, thanks, Lindsay, and thanks, Michael, for the time and your perspective and, and your opinion. And Michael, thanks for the all the research. Uh, and uh, Michael's just got stacks of books behind him. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a long cry from the day that uh, in elementary school we looked up sex in the dictionary to try and figure out what it was so uh, actually uh, it was an encyclopedia yeah no, <laughs> for sure for sure well and if you're somebody who who this has raised more questions and confusion than it's given you answers uh, that's probably we've done our job that, that's probably pretty reflective of how we treat sexuality mm-hmm. in the church and in America. Uh, and so we'll unpack uh, a little bit more and try and uh, provide a little more direct opinion and clarity uh, on, on some of these things. But it's nebulous. Uh, it, it's a challenging thing. And the fact that we weren't talking about it and now we are is is the first step. So we look forward to seeing you in future episodes. Thanks, as always, to Justin Patton, who produces and does the music for our episodes. We appreciate you, Justin. Thanks for everything. Uh, and we really look forward to connecting with you in future weeks feel free to reach out to us on social media not alone pod on instagram is the best way to do it or you can email or get in touch with us directly uh, thanks for all the comments and reviews and support that you've given uh, we're really enjoying season three and really appreciate you taking the time to listen and we hope and pray that wherever you are listening to this that you're doing well um, that that you feel and experience hope and uh, that you have energy that you're enjoying life uh, and that and that god is, is speaking and moving in your lives uh, so there's your little bit of encouragement for the week if you listen to the end of the episode and made it this far by this point justin has probably ramped up the outro music and my voice will begin to fade as we move into the next episode see you next week well every other week release sorry see you next episode bye-bye